0: As we begin at verse 47 of Luke chapter 22 tonight, you need to understand that our text here begins with Jesus and the disciples, 11 of the disciples. Judas isn't there yet, he arrives in verse 47. There they are in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a spring night. And the temperature would be somewhat temperate, wouldn't be terribly cold, sort of like California, spring night, you know, not freezing cold, but a little brisk in the air, for sure, if you're outside, especially in the Jerusalem area, the elevation is a little bit higher. So, uh, you know, in our modern day, you know, way, they'd be like in the 50s, maybe the low 60s outside. Um, It's a, a full moon because it's Passover time, and Passover always happens in a full moon. And there is Jesus, speaks with his disciples, and after he has poured out his heart and his soul in prayer, preparing himself for the trial that he is about to undergo, because he knows that in just a moment, it's going to begin. In just a moment, his great destiny that he came to the earth for, to die on that cross and to rise from the dead, the events that are going to uh, knock over the first domino in that chain that's going to fulfill all these things. It's just about to happen. Matter of fact, if somebody was looking from the outside and was with Jesus at that point, they would see um, sort of a parade of torches coming across the Kidron Valley and back up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Those torches would be in the hand of a multitude that was there to arrest Jesus and take him away as a dangerous criminal. Verse 47, Luke chapter 22. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The multitude came and We need to understand it wasn't just Judas. There was a lot of people in this group that came to arrest Jesus. In our modern parlance, we would say they called out the SWAT team. They brought a lot of people, a lot of force. They wanted to control the situation completely. There were, as we're going to read later on in verse 52, there were the captains of the temple, which was sort of the in-house security force of the Jewish temple. But as well as that, John chapter 18 tells us that there were also Roman soldiers in the group. Nothing was going to be left to chance. They wanted to keep this quiet. They didn't want it getting out of control. They wanted to do the very best they could to keep a lid on this and make it a quiet arrest. Therefore, they counted on Judas to draw close to Jesus and to kiss him to identify the one that they were supposed to arrest. Because no doubt, the captains of the temple weren't fully familiar with Jesus. And it was nighttime and there was a lot of people. And certainly the Roman soldiers weren't familiar with Jesus. It's not like they had a photograph of him in their hand. It's not like they had the artist's conception. They needed somebody to point him out and say, this is the guy. By the way, it also shows us that Jesus didn't walk around with those halos over his head. Otherwise, Judas would have said, no, just get the guy with a halo on his head, the light that shines behind him. No. No, it shows that Jesus was a very normal looking guy. He had to be identified. And how did Judas choose to identify him? You know, according to William Barclay, it was a very customary thing when a disciple met his beloved rabbi that he would lay his Right hand on one shoulder, his left hand on the other shoulder, and draw himself close to him and kiss him. He said that this was the typical greeting that a disciple would give to his rabbi. And it's as if he comes to Jesus, and in this affectionate way, Judas comes to him and says, oh, you're my rabbi, you're my master, I am your disciple, I betray you with this kiss. And that's why Jesus says, verse 48, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Of course, Jesus knew the irony beside this warm greeting. He essentially asked Judas this question. Are you so dead to all feeling that you can kiss and betray at the same time? I think you could say that right here, Judas is a tremendous example of a bad thing. Judas is an example of a seared conscience. The man who could go up and in the warmest of affection, sign Jesus' death warrant. That's a cold-blooded man. But that's what Judas had given himself over to. Now, if I could just say this very quickly, because we talked about it last week, what was Judas's motive? Many people have been doing psychological profiles and such like this, in Judas try to figure out things. I'll tell you, there's only one motive that the Bible speaks of specifically. You might conjure up other motives. Maybe there were other motives involved. Many times when people do something for good or evil, they do it for many motives, not just one. But I'll tell you, the only motive that the Bible speaks about that, that Judas did this for was greed, was money. He went to the priest and he said, how much will you give me if I betray him to you? That's a pretty heavy thing, don't you think? In any regard, the betrayal of Jesus was a terrible sin. And make no doubt about it, even though it fulfilled prophecy, Judas bore complete responsibility for it. Yet I must say this, and it's important for us to see it, that God, in his providence... He used the betrayal of Judas as being the best way to deliver Jesus to his fate. And what do I mean by the best way? Well, think of the alternatives. If they captured Jesus in a fight, or if they uh, captured him while he ran and hid away, then it would have showed that Jesus was an unwilling victim of what he was about to undergo. Jesus didn't want to give that impression. If Jesus had surrendered himself, then it might have excused his murderers, or it might have been seen as a suicide. If it had happened accidentally, then it would have lessened the full effect of the bitter cup that Jesus was about to drink. No, and I like what Spurgeon said at this point. He said, no he must be betrayed by his friend that he may bear the utmost depths of suffering and in that in every separate circumstance there may be a well of grief for him to bear. This was necessary. So Judas draws near, kisses Jesus on the cheek and it's as if he says to all those arresting soldiers, the SWAT team, so to speak, this is the guy He's the one. Then what happens? Look at verse 49. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, Luke is too polite to say it. But the Gospel of John identifies this swordsman as Peter. Did you notice Luke doesn't even tell us who it is. But Luke does tell us this. With a, um, a, a doctor's precision, he points out that it was the right ear of this person that was sliced off. Now look, I, I need to go off on just a bit of conjecture here. But I think it's somewhat reasonable conjecture. Picture this. It, if Peter was, as most everybody was in that culture, right-handed... Because in those cultures, even if you weren't born right-handed, they had a tendency to make you right-handed. I'm not saying there were no left-handed people in ancient cultures, but much fewer because many people were trained out of their left-handedness. So let's just say it's probable that Peter was right-handed. If Peter's right-handed, he has a sword in his right hand. Well, do you realize that if you have a sword in your right hand and you're facing somebody, that it is almost impossible to cut off their right ear with a sword? right? If you're face-to-face with them, You've got to deliver such a precision blow with that sword to, to, on the opposite side of their head to slice off their ear. No, if the person's right in front of you, it's almost certain that you would slice off their left ear because that's the side that your arm's on. Unless, and this is what makes it very interesting as a conjecture, Peter attacked the guy from behind. <laughs> Which knowing Peter and knowing the circumstances and knowing the effect and knowing the response of Jesus, it's entirely likely Here's Peter wielding the sword of the flesh, awkwardly doing his, he's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. You know, swinging behind a poor servant of the high priest, not even one of the soldiers. The gospel of John tells that it was a servant of the high priest. Swinging the sword at a guy, not even facing him. It's the equivalent of shooting a man in the back. And what does Jesus do? He picks up that ear on the ground. He heals them, but not before he said this. Did you notice what he said? He said, permit even this. I think that's a poor translation. Jesus stopped this foolish and ineffective bloodshed by saying this. Permit even this. I like what uh, Marvin Pate, one of the commentators, says. He says, colloquially, we might render these words, stop it. No more of this. That's what Jesus intended to say. Not keep going, guys, with the swords. It was his way of saying, stop. Stop with the sword play." Good one, Peter. You cut a guy's ear off from behind. Yeah, great soldiering right there. I'll fix your misapplication of the sword of the flesh and heal the man. Now, you know, uh, just about 50 days from this, Jesus would have ascended to heaven and Peter would stand before a multitude on Pentecost and he would wield a completely different kind of sword, would he not? he would wield a sword of the Spirit. And those men who heard him on the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 who gave their lives to Jesus Christ, they would say, we are pierced to the heart. That was the kind of sword business that Peter was called to do. Not with the physical sword. So Jesus put the ear back on, he touched the ear, he healed him. Now verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs while well, I was with you daily in the temple? You didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Notice what Jesus says. He goes, really, guys, the SWAT team? Isn't this a little much? I'm one man. You see how great my security detail is? You know, they're like Barney Fife with the gun. They've got the swords. This is my security detail. You can't... You can, you, Really, you need this to get me? But then what he says, did you notice it? In verse 52, it's very powerful. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus explained why he went with them. He did not put up a fight because now was the time for Jesus to do or to allow to be done to him what they wanted to do all along, to arrest him and kill him. By all outward appearances, this was the hour when darkness was in control. This was the hour when darkness was doing its thing. But it's only in appearances. God is going to do his thing in the end. Look now, verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. After a little while, another saw him and said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So what did they do? Verse 54 says very plainly, They led him and brought him to the high priest's house. Now, They brought him to the house of Caiaphas. There's a couple things you need to understand. This was not Jesus' first stop. When you put together all the accounts of Jesus' trials on that night, it's very interesting to see that essentially he had three trials before the Jewish authorities and he had three trials before the Roman authorities. Now, I'm using trials in a very loose way. I'm talking about appearances before people to judge him. His first appearance seems to be before the man named Ananias. Ananias was not officially the high priest, but everybody knew that he was the power behind the throne. That's why they brought him to Ananias' house first. And Ananias passed a quick judgment, take him to Caiaphas. They took him to the house of Caiaphas, and that's where Luke picks up the account. This was at night when Jesus was arrested. They led him, and they brought him to the high priest's house. Now, this is what you need to understand. They're going to put Jesus on trial... At night, with a hastily gathered session of the Sanhedrin at the house of Caiaphas. Luke does not record the details of that nighttime trial. Matthew gives us the details of that trial. Luke will give us the details of the trial that happened at dawn at the same house of Caiaphas that was sort of the rubber stamp official, uh, you know, veneer over this illegal nighttime trial. So they brought him to the house of Caiaphas, and while he's there, there's Peter following from afar. And by the way, I need to point out, archaeologists search around Jerusalem, of course, and try to figure out the sites of these things. And there's somewhat debate among archaeologists as to actually where the house of Caiaphas was. But there's some evidence to believe that it was at this place where many people call, they call it St. Peter's of the cock crowing. It's a a monastery, and there's some uh, old jail down there, and there's some things that are very interesting. But perhaps the most interesting there is a set of steps that date from before the time of Jesus. And it would be almost certain that if that place is the house that Jesus was headed, if that was Caiaphas' house, which is not absolutely certain, but there's a fair summation to be made, there's a case to be made for it, that Jesus would have walked on those exact steps. I mean, I'm not saying that those steps were at the, on top of the steps. I'm saying those exact stones Jesus would have walked on that particular night. In any regard, there he is at that particular place, and it says in verse 54, but Peter followed from a distance. I know it's easy for a preacher to go on that. You see, this is Peter's problem. He was following Jesus at a distance. And that's true. It would have been better if Peter would have been right alongside Jesus Christ saying, listen, I am this man's disciple. Whatever you do to him, do to me because I'm one with this guy. I am his. But you know what? Apparently, only one other of the disciples followed him even at a distance. And that was John. All the rest of them fled. So, at least Peter was following at a distance. He was doing more than many of the other disciples. Yet, it was much more difficult for Peter to admit. His association with Jesus when he followed him at a distance. Therefore, when he's warming himself around the fire, looking through the courtyard, seeing Jesus as they're sort of hastily gathering together whatever ad hoc group they can of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and he can see Jesus because he's concerned about Jesus. He wants to know what's going to happen to him. He wants to know if by some means he can do anything to help. He knows that he can't go through and be like a ninja and free Jesus. That's crazy. That can't happen. but I don't know maybe there's something he can do or maybe there's something he can learn and as he sits among this group of servants and soldiers and common people around this fire in the middle of the night did you notice what happened a little servant girl interrogates Peter I use the word interrogate in a joking sense because a little servant girl a girl scout comes along to Peter and says hey aren't you one of the guys that was with Jesus What's Peter's response? Look at it here. Verse 57 says, but he denied him. He denied Jesus in at least three specific ways. First, in verse 57, it says, he denied even knowing Jesus. Verse 57, woman, I do not know him. That's what he said to the Girl Scout. Then he denied being a follower of Jesus. Look at it here in verse 58 man, I am not, I am not a follower of Jesus. Then finally, in verse 60, he's denying that he's even from Galilee. Man, I do not know what you are saying. You see, as is common in many places in the world, where you are from is betrayed by the way that you speak. And the Galileans had their own accent or dialect or this, and they could tell, well, look, you talk like a Galilean. It would be like somebody with a thick Texas drawl or, you know, a New England accent or something like that. And, and if Jesus was from Texas or New England, nobody get any ideas about that. But you say, well, of course, you're one of his disciples. Look, you talk just like he would. You're from that area. And Peter denies. Isn't it funny? Think of a guy with a very thick Texas accent denying that he ever came from Texas. That's essentially what he's doing in verse 60, where he says, man, I do not even know what you're saying. And as soon as he does that, he does something else. Matthew chapter 26, verse 74 says this, that at the last denial, Peter began to even curse and swear. Look at it here, Matthew chapter 26, verse 74. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Well, you know what? If you want to distance yourself from Jesus, if you want to show to other people that you really don't know Jesus at all, cursing and swearing is a pretty good way to do it. It's a pretty good way to see, yeah, I don't even know the guy. I don't have any association with him. That's what Peter began to do. Now notice what happened at the end of it. What do we say? Immediately, while he was still speaking, The rooster crowed. And you know what? uh, In that culture, in those kind of places, there's always, you know, chickens and roosters running around. It's the most common thing in the world to hear a rooster crow in the morning. Nothing unusual about that. Think about all the hundreds, maybe even thousands of mornings that Peter and others had heard a rooster crow. Think for everybody else around that fire. They heard a rooster crow. So what? What do you think it said to Peter when that rooster crowed? He remembered what Jesus had said. When Peter, in his tremendous self-confidence, said, Jesus, not only will I not deny you, I will die with you. And Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me so fast that the rooster's not even going to crow. The alarm clock's not even going to go off in the morning until you deny me three times. And instantly, Peter realized that all his talk, all his bragging, all his pride about what a great servant and devoted follower of Jesus was, it crumbled. Let me ask you right now, can you imagine how broken Peter is at verse 60? Can you imagine how shattered he is? But was he in a good place or a bad place? Friends, it is a painful thing to be broken of our pride. But it is a good thing. It is good. And I don't expect for a moment for Peter to be happy in verse 60. Matter of fact, he was probably never lower in his entire life than he was right then. And deservedly so. But friends, it's a good place to realize. God, you are so right And I am so wrong, and the high opinion of myself that I once had, it's shattered. What a powerful thing that is. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. You want a great debating point for tonight? Which hurt Peter more, the sound of the cock crowing or the look of Jesus across the courtyard? By the way, how do you think Jesus looked at Peter? Do you think what was written on Jesus' face, and of course I'm getting a little speculative here, but let's just say what we know from the heart of Jesus. Do you think written on Jesus' face was, I told you so? No, I don't think so. Do you think what was written on Jesus' face was, how could you ever do such a thing for me? Was it unbelievable disappointment and rejection and see you're just a miserable failure, Peter? I don't think so at all. Don't you think it was love and compassion on the face of Jesus? Verse 61 again. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly Peter remembered the words of the Lord if he had only remembered them sooner and maybe that's like a light from heaven upon your mind and heart right now that there's a word from the Lord that you might remember later you might remember it a week from now and it'll be to your great sorrow and pain but if you would remember it now if you remember it now it would be for your deliverance You could humble yourself before the mighty hand of God right now before you're shattered before Him. Do you see the difference? So he remembered the word of the Lord and then he wept bitterly. It was appropriate for him to weep bitterly. But friends, we know this. Peter was not without hope because the same Jesus who said, you're going to deny me, is the same Peter, the, excuse me, the same Jesus that said this to Peter. He said this, he said, and when you have been restored, your faith will not fail. Isn't that beautiful? If Jesus is right about the one, he's going to be right about the other. And Peter could hold great confidence in that. Now, verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him they struck him on the face and asked him saying, "Prophesy, who is the one who struck you?" And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Now Luke passes over the proceedings that happened right before this. How Caiaphas questioned Jesus in this nighttime trial. He just skips to the end that after the trial, the men guarding him started to beat Jesus. Luke's going to pick it up after daybreak with the daytime trial, the morning trial. Friends, I cannot tell you, or I must tell you, I should say, that I can't read those words without feeling something deep in my gut. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Why? Why? Do you think Jesus was trying to escape? Do you think Jesus was bad-mouthing them? Do you think Jesus was one of those uncooperative prisoners? Do you think that Jesus did anything to offend or to hurt? Do you think Jesus was, you know, cursing them or pronouncing uh, ill words against them anyway? No. Do you realize That this is one of the most pure expressions of the gratuitous hatred that man has towards God. It's an awkward thing to talk about that, isn't it? It's awkward because we don't normally sense out in the world that man hates God. But if you want evidence to the fact that man, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from God working in his life, instinctively hates God... Look at what they did to Jesus when they had the chance. When they had the chance, they grabbed him, and they beat him, and they mocked him. It's easy for us to think that they did this because they didn't know who he was. Oh, if they would have known he was the Messiah, then they wouldn't have done this to it. But yet, friends, in another sense, by nature, man is an enemy of God. And for a long time, man had waited... To literally slap God in the face. To literally spit in God's face. Because Luke doesn't tell us about the spitting, but the other gospels do. And so this is what had to happen. Omnipotence had to be held captive and its glory had to be mocked. Goodness had to be smitten and stricken and bruised and assaulted. Omniscience must seem to be blinded. The face of God's perfect love has to be struck and punched repeatedly. Divine justice must be defied. And here's the thing that is almost the most grotesque thing about it. That while they did this, the full sinfulness of man was on display Friends, when they did this, they were laughing. It was a game to them. It wasn't some like mournful work. Oh, the prisoner must be subdued. So go out and give him a beating. And reluctantly somebody, okay, I have to do this. I mean, look, it's for the good of the prisoner or for our penal system or something like that. No. They thought it was a game to do this. And and, and they're... They found their cruelty against Jesus to be something delicious. They enjoyed it. And then they multiplied their sin. Notice what it says. It says in verse 65, and many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Luke's giving us the condensed account. He's not even telling us all that they did. But then you know what gets me as well in this account. They blindfold him. I don't know if they hit him with an open hand or if they hit him with a clenched fist. But can you imagine how that would jar you? You could not prepare yourself physically to take a punch. You know, you couldn't strengthen yourself or or get ready to endure it. But you're completely blind to it. You have a blindfold on and they start beating you around the face. And then what do they say? If that isn't cruelty enough, with glee in their voices, they cry out and they say, Prophesy! Tell us the one who struck you, Mr. Prophet, Mr. Messiah. There's a man sitting across the courtyard named Peter who could tell you about Jesus' ability to prophesy, could he not? (laughs) Didn't Jesus just establish his credentials in a remarkable way as a prophet? But did they care? No. They found sport in the beating. It was important for Jesus to face this abuse. Even though it was painful for him to endure, and even though it was painful for us as his followers to consider this, it was important. First of all, it was important to demonstrate that the proper reply to hate is not more hate but love. Did not Jesus demonstrate this? Secondly, it was important to demonstrate that his, Jesus had an unshakable trust in God, his Father, and that God, his Father, would vindicate him and he did not need to defend himself. Thirdly, it showed it was important so that those who are abused and humiliated will find refuge in a God Who knows exactly what they have experienced? Spurgeon said this I must also call him victorious. His persecutors could not make him give way to anger. They could not destroy his mercy. They could not slay his love. They could not cause him to think of himself. They could not make him declare that he would go no further with his work of saving sinners. Now that men began to scoff at him and smite him and despitefully use him, friends, that's victory. And Jesus displayed it all. Verse 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying... Now again, on the night of his betrayal... And on the day of his crucifixion, Jesus actually stood in trial before one official or another several times before different judges or councils. And the order of events to this point can be summarized. First, he was brought to the home of Annas, the ex-high priest and essentially the power behind the throne. Then he was sent over to the home of Caiaphas the one who was then the sitting high priest. And there he was placed on trial before an ad hoc gathering of the Sanhedrin still during the night. And they brought forth many false witnesses to try to accuse Jesus. But they all contradicted themselves. And the case was falling apart against Jesus. So in an act of desperation, Caiaphas, the high priest, he looked at Jesus in the eye and he said this, are you going to tell me, demand me, I I demand that you tell me if you you are the Son of God. And this is what Jesus replied in that nighttime trial. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, where he says this It is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. And then after that, the beating that's described in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 63, happened. The beating that we just described. Then, verse 66, as soon as it was day, the Sanhedrin gathered again. Now, why? Why would they do it again? Because the night trial was completely illegal. Completely illegal. The Jewish people at this time had a very advanced sense of legal system and and a, a, a system of their courts and all the rest of it. That's why it says in verse 66, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led them into his council. You see, their own laws and regulations were so broken by the night trial that they felt like they had to put some kind of, you know, fix upon it. You see, for example, according to Jewish law, all criminal trials had to begin and end in the daylight. And the second trial was necessary because they knew the first one. The first one was the real trial, but it had no legal standing. You see, according to Jewish law, only decisions made in the official meeting place were valid. This was held at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. So it was at their council and it was invalid. According to Jewish law... Criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season. According to Jewish law, only an acquittal could be issued on the same day of the trial. If you were going to find the man guilty, you had to wait a day to allow for feelings of mercy to arise in the judge. According to Jewish law, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses. And they had to be separately examined and they could not have any contact with one another. And false witness was punishable by death. And according to Jewish law, a trial always began by bringing forth the evidence of innocence for the accused. And the evidence of before the evidence of guilt was ever offered. None of these were followed in the trials of Jesus. So now, at verse 67, Caiaphas is essentially going to recreate what happened the night before. He's going to sort of put a veneer on it. Forget the false witnesses. They don't even bring them in. They didn't do any good in the first trial. So now he's just going to cut to the chase like he did eventually in the first trial. He says this, verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. In verse 67, Caiaphas presents the same question, the money question, so to speak, that he asked Jesus in the previous illegal night trial. plainly saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. The first thing Jesus said in verse 67, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. Wasn't this the perfect answer given the circumstances? Jesus had already been tried and found guilty. Jesus knew and everybody knew that this trial was only for a show. It was a show trial in the purest expression of it. The, 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 um, the end was already predetermined. They were going to give him a first-class trial followed by first-class execution. That was all there was to it. And so he said, why am I even answering this? If I tell you, you will by no means believe. But then he says this in verse 69. Hereafter... The Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now this was essentially the same answer that Jesus had given the night before. Jesus warned them that even though they sat in judgment of him now, he would sit in judgment upon them later with a far more binding judgment. You know what, if you like to underline words in your Bible, can I suggest you underline one word there in verse 69? Underline that word hereafter. There's a lot bound up in that word. Because with that word, Jesus directed their attention to the age to come. Hereafter. You know, guys, you seem to be in control right here, don't you? You seem to be able to do whatever you can. My bloody lip, my bruised face, I've been smacked around mercilessly, the spit in my beard, all of that is evidence that you guys think you can do whatever you want to me, and by all appearance right here and now you can. But let me tell you something, we're not just playing for this present moment. You better think about hereafter. You better think about the age to come. Because in the age to come... Each one of you is going to sit before me in judgment. You, Caiaphas, what are you going to say to me on that day? Annas, the power behind the throne of the high priest. What defense are you going to make before me? All you religious leaders, the man you railroaded, abused, beat, and spat upon. Then he will sit in judgment of you hereafter. Friends, we almost have something in miniature that faces every man and every woman who hears about Jesus Christ and his great work for them. It feels like they are in judgment of Jesus. I mean, it's inevitable that it would feel like that. That's exactly what it felt like here. It's as if we tell somebody about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for them. And it's like, okay, we want you to make a judgment whether or not you're going to yield your life to Jesus Christ. Is it going to be thumbs up to Jesus or thumbs down to Jesus? It's as if Jesus on trial before each individual human heart that hears about him. And I understand that and I get them. But if you were to pan the camera back, who's really on judgment? That individual. You and I are on judgment before Jesus. You know this story, it's kind of a preacher's illustration. It's been used a dozen different ways, expressed in different things. But a man stands before a painting of one of the great masters Rembrandt, Da Vinci, whoever, Michelangelo, whatever. He's standing before the painting of one of the great masters, and he's looking at it, and being an untrained, uncultured man, he's kind of like, ah, no, I don't really care for it. And one of the people there who works at the museum, they come by and they say, sir, That painting's not up for judgment. It's you who are up for judgment. You see, his opinion of the painting didn't say anything about the painting, but it said everything about him. That's how it is for mankind today. People who reject Jesus really doesn't tell us anything new about Jesus, but it tells us everybody, everything about that person who rejected him. Friends, I feel badly that we sort of have to push the pause button here. That we have to stop in the middle of this very critical trial of Jesus. But we'll pick it up next week starting at chapter 23. And we're going to walk with Jesus eventually to the cross and then to the empty tomb. There is an old prayer that comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church that goes something like this. By your unknown sufferings, Lord, deliver us. And I think like that. I know what's written on the page, and it feels heavy enough for us to enter into it, does it not? Do we realize that there were sufferings that Jesus endured in all this, that there's no way that they could be expressed on the page or fit on the page? By those sufferings as well, he delivers us. Father, we come to you as a God so great in love that you would do this, that you would walk down the rungs of the ladder from your glory in heaven all the way to the earth, not only to become a man, not only to become a humble man, not only to become a servant among men, but Lord, eventually to make yourself at the mercy of men to receive their punches and their spit in your face. Jesus, it just makes us resolved. If this is how some in this world will treat you, then we are all the more determined to praise you. If they won't honor you as they should, then you will receive that praise from your people. And make us people who will honor you and praise you as you deserve to be worshipped. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.